Welcome to Tisky Sour. It's just me tonight. I don't have any co-hosts um, hosting with me, but I do have two phenomenal guests. I will be speaking to the General Secretary of the UCU about the university strikes and later on to Zara Sultana about a really worrying report actually that has just been released about Islamophobia in the British press. It probably won't be a surprise to you what they have discovered, but it is very important for, for us to cover because it basically confirms what we already knew. Also on tonight's show, and we'll be talking all of the latest issues surrounding COVID, in particular concerning Christmas parties past and future. And, you know, for good measure, I've got a couple of Tories making themselves look like idiots on Politics Live. Let's go straight to our first story today. 58 universities were hit by strikes by teaching staff protesting a cut to their pensions and the erosion of pay and working conditions. The first round of strikes will last until Friday, so so three days from now until Friday. And if no agreement is reached, there could be plenty more to come. I'm joined by General Secretary of the University and College Union, Dr. Joe Grady. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Can you explain exactly why lecturers have gone on strike? First of all, it is not just lecturers, um, it's librarians, it's technicians, it's all manner of people, it's counsellors. Um, but the reasons we have gone on strike is two, twofold, there's two disputes. One is our long-running pension dispute, um, which we, in 2018, were able to reverse damaging cuts, um, but employers are trying to essentially implement the same cuts again. And this time they're doing it on the basis of evaluation that was conducted literally in March 2020. 20 as markets were crashing and we were entering a, a global economic shutdown. Um, and the second dispute that we're in is, is on the headline is pay, because pay has been cut by 20% um, in the last 12 years. But it's also really about the future of the sector, really. We have 75,000 insecure contracts that exist in higher education. The people that are on those contracts do approximately 30% of the teaching. So these are people who are core, who are central, who keep the sector afloat. And some of them are on, you know, 0.2 contracts that last 12 weeks. Um, and in addition to that, we have workloads that are just simply burning staff out, people having to work six, if not seven day weeks, um, and 50% of staff um, reporting signs of, of probable depression. And that's before we even get on to ethnicity, gender, and disability pay gap. So the sector is at breaking point. Many staff are at breaking point. And in addition to all of those things, as I say, the staff that are in the USS pension scheme are facing yet another needless, um, really manufactured deficit onslaught on their pensions. And UC members, as ever, are not having it. <laughs> so that's why we're on strike. Can we focus a bit more on the pensions issue? Because I did get a bit of a deja vu. And I was like, oh, the, the UCU is striking about pensions again. What's what, what was the issue in 2019? What was the resolution of that conflict? And and what's different about what, what's happening this time around? So for people who aren't familiar, and I'm sorry to just take a moment, there's um, a, a, the pension scheme that we have is called a defined benefit pension scheme. And what that means is you know how much you're going to get on an annual basis in retirement. That's the defined benefit aspect. So it could be, you know, a, a certain percentage of your final salary, which is what it used to be, or it could just be a certain income every year. In 2018, the employers tried to downgrade our scheme to something called a defined contribution scheme. Now, as the name suggests, all that means is you know you're going to get what you contributed to the scheme. But obviously, the value of that, if it doesn't increase as the years go on, could be far less really in value than you put in the scheme. 
So it's a huge loss of income in retirement. In 2018, very similar arguments to what are being used now, i.e. deficits in the pension scheme, um, were used to say that we needed to have the scheme downgraded. UCU strike action in 2014 essentially made managers of universities have to, one, reassess their appetite for risk, i.e. are they willing to pay more into the scheme because we value it? But secondly, the valuation methodology that is used for the scheme um, overlayers prudence into the scheme. It essentially s- assumes the scheme will uh, need to be mothballed or higher education could go under and therefore we need to ensure that we've got enough assets in the scheme to cover its liabilities, which is just rubbish because HE in the UK is going nowhere. It's probably one of the safest sectors that we have. So I'm sorry, I know this is a really long answer to your question, but in 2018, we battled back, which no other union has really managed to do. In 2019, the dispute was about the increase in contributions and therefore costs that staff were having to pay because the issue that really was left somewhat unresolved in 2018 still hadn't been uh, solved. And now 2021, um, we are really dealing with uh, employers trying to do via the back door what they didn't manage in 2018. So they're not downgrading it to a DC scheme, but they're seeking to cut 35% from the guaranteed element of the scheme which is cut it to the bone. Um, the, the casualized staff that are low paid are already opting out of the scheme. And if you opt out of a pension scheme, for people listening who don't know this, you don't get your employer contributions. And at the minute, employers are paying 21.4% into our pension scheme on our behalf. It's our deferred wage. So if you lose and leave the scheme, you're losing all that money. So it's a huge issue of what is essentially wage theft of deferred wages when they try and do this. And UCU members fully understand that this is exactly what it is. We know that they're trying to appropriate this value from us because they've cut every other way of taking money from their staff. And this is what they're trying. So it is deja vu, but we also are having great deja vu on the picket lines and aren't going anywhere. So as far as I understand it, they've said we can't afford your pensions as they currently are. But the the, the sort of assessment, the calculation they made was based on an assessment of sort of the stock markets in the middle of the initial coronavirus crisis and then some forecast that all of the universities are going to collapse at some point and you're saying that's that's not a particularly good way to sort of do accounting or to assess how much you can you know what obligations you can afford do universities have a money problem though i mean we often get told that you know they get all of their money from international students covid has sort of damaged brand britain when it comes to to issues such as that, do, do universities need more money? Is is there a cash flow problem at the moment? Absolutely not. Um, the sector is worth tens of billions of pounds. Uh, the latest figures from 2019, 2020 showed the total income across the sectors uh, uh, was 41.9 billion and reserves were 46.8 billion. HE is swimming in cash. Um, the idea that it needs to cut pensions and it needs to treat staff so poorly um, is absolute rubbish. Briefly about the, the other aspect of this strike. So we talked about pensions, there's also pay and I think sort of casualization is 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 also sort of involved in that aspect of it. So what are the specific issues that people are striking about there? Yeah, so with pay, um, it's essentially four fights is what we've called it in the union. Um, it's about staff pay, which has been held down by 20% over 12 years. So we're asking for an uplift in pay. We are saying that the misuse and the exploitation of staff through casualized contracts has to end. It cannot continue. 
So that is a huge part of it. But that links to the workload crisis. Um, as I say, half of staff showing probable signs of depression. Um, workload was a problem before the pandemic. It has increased even more so. And this obviously is linked to marketization. Students pay exorbitant fees, you know, and a lot of the discussions today have been, you know, should students get um, refund for fees? I'm like, well, they shouldn't be paying fees in the first place. But universities want to sell students a kind of a, a first class, first rate education, but they want to do it on the values of the gig economy. And one, for us as staff, you know, our working conditions are the learning conditions of students unhealthy staff which we have burnt out staff that we have and are, are not in the best place to deliver good education or other services for students so these aspects of our pay dispute linked and separate but we're asking for improvements on them all because they are inherently linked that that's kind of the the far fights aspect of the pay dispute and in the short term, I mean, I, I know you've put forward an argument there. It's very persuasive that the working conditions of lecturers matter for the, you know, the learning conditions of, of students. In the short term, though, you know, we are hearing about students have had a pretty difficult two years. You know, the service they have received, not because lecturers aren't working as hard as they ever were, but the service they have received is, is worse just because it's, it's worse learning on, on Zoom than it is in person. What's the discussion among lecturers about students missing more education and what's the sense you're getting from students about whether or not you know how, how up for these strikes they are especially if they you know continue beyond these three days well first of all I would say that a picket line probably offers you better education than any lecture theatre and I say that as a, as a you know as an academic myself I, I never take student support for granted but over 70 percent of students when surveyed by the National Union of Students back the strikes and, you know, let's be honest, students now know what strikes mean. They know it means mass disruption for them. And they're still willing to back the staff because, yes, they have had disruption through COVID. No one would deny that. But they've also really been exposed to just how little their institutions respect them. You know, this time last year, we were seeing students at the University of Manchester having fences erected outside of their accommodation. You know, we saw students taking part in a rent strike. Um so I have lots of sympathy for students and, you know, I, and I completely understand why some of them are very angry because they, they have been forced into enter into a marketized customer type relationship with their university. But I think they do consistently know and understand that staff are there for them and that when we are doing this, it is genuinely for students. You know, we've, there's been some comments on social media about, you know, marginalized students suffer the most when there's strikes. Marginalised students suffer the most, in my opinion, when staff are treated this way, when staff do not have sufficient time to spend with them, when there's no chance of anybody from those marginalised communities even becoming staff in HE because we only employ, you know, people who come through certain educational routes or, you know, do certain types of research. So what we are trying to say is, yes, these are our terms and conditions and we want them to improve. But more than that, if this doesn't improve, um, the state of UK higher education will get worse and worse and worse. And that has to end. Finally, what does happen next? I mean, how long, obviously you, you can't tell me how long these strikes are going to last because it will depend on negotiations between between you and the, the bosses. Can you give us any sort of indication? Or, you know, what, what's the maximum this could last? What's the minimum? How long did the strikes end up lasting in, in 2018 and 2019? I've, I've forgotten already. So in 2018, we took 14 days of action. And in 2019, 2020, we took 22. What I would say is, 
next steps will be determined by negotiations, but they will also be determined by UCU members. We'll be holding consultations in the new year about more strike action. I think UCU members understand now and know that there has to be escalating and sustained strike action because that's the only time university managers listen. Um, it's what produced massive changes in the pension scheme negotiations in 2018. So, you know, I, I can't I can't say what will happen in the new year because that's dependent on our members, uh, you know, voting democratically for something and on how things progress. But, yeah, if things don't change, you can expect UCU to be calling the type of strike action it has in the past. Joe Grady, thank you so much for coming back on Navarro Media and, and solidarity to you and your, your colleagues on the picket lines. Let's go to our next story. Anti-racist campaigners have long complained that the UK media fuels Islamophobia. And a new report by the Centre for Media Monitoring, which is run by the Muslim Council of Britain, appears to confirm those concerns. The report analysed over 48,000 online articles and 5,500 broadcast clips and found that almost 60% of online media articles and 47% of television clips associated Muslims or Islam with negative behaviour. What's more, over one in five articles which mentioned Muslims or Islam had a primary focus on terrorism or extremism. These statistics show Britain's media has a serious problem. And one person who knows more than most about the material consequences of this constant vilification about Muslims is Zara Sultana. We've discussed before on this show how the 28-year-old MP for Coventry South has spoken in Parliament about the Islamophobia she faces in her job, and she's now written for Navarra Media about the responsibility which the media share when it comes to this issue. Earlier today, I spoke to Zara Sultana and started by asking her to describe some of the racist abuse she has suffered since being elected to Parliament. Since getting elected in 2019, I've received correspondence that's hateful, racist um, in the post, in my email inbox and on social media. I found that um, it increases when I'm specifically in parliament or going to protests around migrants' rights, when I'm speaking out for Palestinian people, or when I'm supporting causes like Black Lives Matter. And when you read what people write, they often talk about things like migrants and they'll talk about um, the fact that I'm Muslim um, as well as my uh, race and gender as well. So they bring all of those things inside what they're saying. When you talk about this and as you have in your, your Navarra Media article, you sort of explain these racist incidents and these emails and these social media posts with reference to the media and the Islamophobia that we know is in in the media or, or at the top of the political establishment. I suppose the counter to that, the pushback against that would be, is this actually just a very small minority who are being overrepresented because social media and emails, whatever, make it very, very easy for them to be very noisy and be very disruptive to your life. Do you think this is more a technology problem than it is a sort of institutional racism one? What's your take on that? I don't think it's a technology problem. MCB's report specifically is looking at nearly 50,000 articles, nearly 5,000 broadcast clips and saying 60% of those have coverage that you can um, call Islamophobic or racist or hostile towards Muslims. It doesn't have an accurate portrayal of Muslims or Islam. Um, and then the ratio is seven to one of that hostile coverage to stuff that's more accurate or neutral. When you see that being drip fed, 
um, into uh, the emails that I'm getting, other MPs like Upsana Begum's getting, you can see that this is a widespread problem. Furthermore, when you look at how many hate crimes have been committed in the UK, around 50% of those were Islamophobic. There's this direct correlation. And then you have to bring in the fact that we have politicians who get away with saying things like Muslim women who wear the niqab or bank robbers, uh, they look like letterboxes, and that also leads to that effect in the streets where people are being attacked. And then when we look at policies that this government, previous governments, including Labour governments, have introduced, like the prevent strategy, like going to war with the pretext of using tropes that are Islamophobic, oppressive Muslim men, those sorts of things, you can see that this is very interlinked. Most people with with any empathy will recognise, you know, you've got a young woman of colour elected to parliament in the public eye. We have had two MPs who were you know, violently killed in the last five or six years. This, I think, would, would terrify most people. And, and I want to know what sort of support you're getting, you know, e- either from the police or from the House of Commons or from, from the Labour Party. Are, are there people who are sort of um, giving you the support that you feel like you need or the support that that you want in this situation? Whenever we get uh, emails or things in the post or things on social media that we think are inciting hate um, and also are posing a danger to me, we always report those to the police. Um, The House of Commons security team is also made aware of those things as well. I think that the Labour Party in particular doesn't take well-being as seriously as it should. There isn't any safeguards for anyone um, when you're going through any anything, really. And I think that's something that the party needs to really like, address. Um, in terms of um, getting the, the support that I need, I have an excellent staff team. Uh, they are amazing and they provide a lot of support, my family and friends too. But I think this is an issue that, sure, I'm experiencing individually, but there are more people um, that are doing are going through the same as me. And I think the party in particular um, needs to do more. I find it quite hurtful um, that the leader of my party has found it difficult to express solidarity publicly to both me and Upsana. I think, you know, in any job, you just expect that as a kind of bare minimum, um, especially when others are able to get that solidarity online. So I think that there are definitely things that the party should be doing uh, to make us feel like we're not just being left um, to get attacked and then we're just going to not get any support. You know, I've, I've seen lots of people make a comparison between Keir Starmer's public statements in support of Angela Rayner and you know, the absence of any in relation to the abuse you, you've experienced. Obviously, you, you both deserve um, that solidarity. Has he, has he contacted you privately? Is it, is it just a, a public thing that he's scared to get involved in this you know, publicly, online, privately, has he has he expressed his solidarity? Nothing, both publicly and privately. And even from his team? So has anyone from his office sort of taken this on and, and reached out to you, even if, you know, maybe Keir Starmer doesn't have time, if that's his excuse? I've had other members of the front bench who have been in touch, you know, people um, who, uh, people like Nick Thomas-Simmons, uh, Louise Haig, um, various others, but no one from Lotto, not Keir himself. Wow. I mean, that's really remarkable. What do you think that's about? What's your, what's your you know, what, what, what do you think is going on here? I genuinely have no idea. Um, I just, 
yeah, I'm, it, it shocks me as well. So, um, I don't know. As I, as I sort of, you know, said earlier, I think many people watching this will, you know, feel a great amount of empathy, young woman of color in the public eye, very talented, got elected exactly the kind of person who we want to be in parliament. But, you know, it's, it seems like you're in quite a difficult situation at this point in time. What I want to know, would you advise someone in your situation or someone who was in your situation two years ago to stand in, to stand for, for parliament, to become a Labour MP? Or, or does sometimes you think maybe this is more trouble than it's worth? It's a, it's a difficult question. I think it is an incredibly privileged position that I'm in to be elected, to be able to represent people, to tell the Tories to their face what I think of them on behalf of so many who feel the same. It's an honour um, and I'm, I feel very lucky to be in this position. Equally, at the same time, the stuff that you have to deal with continuously, um, the effect that it has on your mental health, all of those things, like your family and your friends worrying, it has a huge cost. And I would love to just tell people like, you know, you should just, everyone should try to become an MP. You should um, definitely like, you know, pursue that kind of um, career, especially if you want to make a difference. But if you're a woman of color, if you're Muslim, if you're from a background where people think that you, you know, you, you shouldn't be here, um, it's difficult. But I feel like I have a responsibility to speak up about this so people are one aware. And then two, we do something about it because I'm sick of talking about it. It's not nice. It's, it's shit, really. Um, but we we talk about it. People like Absana and others who spoke in that Islamophobia debate in Westminster Hall just a couple of days ago they're speaking about it not because it feels good it doesn't it it, it feels completely um the opposite but we're doing it so let's talk about the issues that exist now let's do something about it and I feel like I don't want to be here in 10 15 20 years having the same conversation that we're still getting abused we're still treated like shit um let's do something about it and I think that's what's really important that we identify that it's not just us. We see the, the attacks that are happening on a whole a group of communities, right? Like when we look at what's happening with the trans community, um, the, 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 the way the media is whipping up a lot of this hate, um, how it goes unchallenged in so many political spaces, in so many, uh, you know, my party also doesn't have a, a particularly proud record on this as well as um, other communities under attack as well. And I think we all need to stand together in solidarity and have this united front and say, actually, attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. Or we're not going to stand up for it. Um, and I think the Labour Party in particular, when it comes to the Muslim community, when we look at the Labour Muslim report that came out a couple of months ago, when we look at some of the briefings that were coming out around Batley and Spence, saying, actually, if we lose the Muslim community's votes, then no big deal. I mean, that's just disgusting. You shouldn't be able to get away with saying things like that about any community, um, especially a community that votes overwhelmingly for the Labour Party that is disproportionately reflected in poverty stats, in low health outcomes, in um, you know the housing crisis that we see in our country. And I think there needs to be a bit more respect and a lot more attention given to these issues. Finally, because I, I know we've got to let you go because you're an incredibly busy person. But there, there were reports recently about threats to deselect you 
Now, I know from the comments in, on our video, we did a video on it, like people are, are terrified that one of the few left-wing MPs they think speaks for them could be removed from the PLP. How, how worried are you about a deselection threat? This is a process that all Labour MPs are going through. And I've been working hard in my constituency and with my CLP, building those good relationships. And I'm hopeful that they will reselect me as their candidate. Uh, but the power is with them. And hopefully um, I will get their vote when that time comes. That was Zara Sultana giving, I mean, a, a very impressive answer on that last question. That's what I would love to have, have heard from all the right-wing MPs when Corbyn was leader, who when they were asked, are you worried about deselection? said, well, that will be... That'll be up to my, up to my constituents. I tr not my constituents, sorry, my members. I, tr I try and have a strong, positive relationship to them. Instead, what do we hear? Oh yes, I'm terrified. It's bullying. It's a purge. Um, no, it's it's democracy. I mean, obviously, I mean, so so many things to say about what what Zara said there. But I think, you know, what I was most shocked by, and I imagine what what lots of you guys will be shocked by, not even a message, not just from Keir Starmer, but from anyone in his office. You know. Not a, not a card, not a message, not no acknowledgement whatsoever. And they can't claim ignorance because Zara has spoken very powerfully about this in Parliament. You know, social media clips that have got hundreds of thousands of views with her talking about the painful experience of, of, of being a, a Muslim, a young Muslim woman in the public eye. And no one in their office has said anything. On one level, it's kind of sociopathic, I think, like to just not express solidarity. What the hell are you doing? At the same time, it's just bad politics. I mean, it makes them look terrible. Obviously, they don't have to worry about that because the media aren't going to care about this particular story. If this was Jeremy Corbyn who hadn't reached out to someone who'd been experiencing racism, you know, we'd hear about that all the time. With Keir Starmer, nope, it's fine. I mean, because also, you know, so much of our media sees someone like Zara Sultana, someone on the left, young woman of color in public life, a Muslim openly, someone who talks about being Muslim. Th these things are not accepted in our society, which means that this racism can happen against a, a very impressive public figure and so little solidarity is offered from our media class or even from the leader of her own party. Now, I mentioned in that interview that Keir Starmer has expressed solidarity with other MPs for receiving similar abuse to Zara Sultana. This was um, something he tweeted on Tuesday um, because Angela Rayner had, had received threats. So Keir Starmer tweeted, the threats that Angela and her family have faced are abhorrent. There is absolutely no place for it in our politics or in our society. And that's a good tweet. That's a fine tweet. I'm not, I'm not going to say because Zara Sultana didn't get solidarity, Angela Rayner doesn't deserve it. Angela Rayner deserves solidarity. But clearly Keir Starmer doesn't have some policy where he says, oh no, because I want to be prime minister, I'm not going to comment on on things such as threats to my, I mean, that would be a crazy policy anyway. I mean, it's difficult to imagine that. In any case, even if there were someone in his office who was stupid enough to think that, you, you know, a leader of a party shouldn't be expressing solidarity with their own MPs, they clearly don't have that policy. So it does seem like Zara Sultana is being victimized essentially here. No contact whatsoever, no message, no card. It's just the least you can do if you are a remotely decent person. And I think for all of the promises broken, for all of the cowardly, two-faced actions which Keir Starmer has taken, I think having a young Muslim female MP in your party, newly elected, not an easy thing to do, to be elected as a young woman to parliament, who is receiving racist abuse and has spoken openly about it multiple times in public, and which has rightly got attention. People have watched those speeches and been really moved by them. And he's just pretending nothing has happened. I think it's completely bizarre. It speaks to a really weird character, frankly. Well, either a cruel character or a weird one. It's, it's, I, I can't really fathom being that way.
It's incredibly worrying, actually. Um, and of course, solidarity to Zara Sultana, amazing MP, brilliant interview, incredible communicator. Um, and if you're in her constituency, please organize so she doesn't get deselected because God, I'll be depressed as so many of you I know in our audience will be one of the, one of the few really inspiring, young, progressive MPs that Labour has. And we've got people in the leadership briefing that she's going to be deselected. Let's go on to our next story. Lacking any clear policies, Labour's favourite attack line to distinguish themselves from the Tories is that Boris Johnson's government act as if there's one rule for them and one rule for everyone else. On that front, Starmer was delivered new material by The Mirror. Their front page on Wednesday read, Boris party broke COVID rules. So in that story, The Mirror revealed that there were two parties held at Downing Street late last year. They report that a party held on the 18th of December, 40 to 50 people gathered together in what one source described as a COVID nightmare. At the time of that party, London was under tier three restrictions, which meant all indoor mixing was banned, except when in household bubbles. So pretty clear there. There was an exception made for gatherings, quote, reasonably necessary for work, unquote. But one, parties don't sound reasonably necessary. And two, the government's own guidance was clear that they are not reasonably necessary. They do not fall into that category. In fact, this is what their guidance said on the subject of Christmas parties when we were in tier four. They said, although there are exemptions for work purposes, you must not have a work Christmas lunch or party where that is a primarily social activity and is not otherwise permitted by the rules in your tier. Keir Starmer led with the rule breaker allegations at today's Prime Minister's questions. As millions of people were locked down last year, was a Christmas party thrown in Downing Street for dozens of people on December the 18th? Prime Minister! Mr Speaker, uh, what I can tell the right honourable gentleman is that, uh, is that all guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. And can I, and, and can I, can I recommend uh, to the right honourable gentleman that he does uh, the same uh, with his own Christmas party, which he's advertised uh, for December the 15th, for which, to which unaccountably he's failed to invite the, 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 the deputy leader, uh, Mr Speaker. <laughs> Nice try, but that won't work, Mr. Speaker. The, the, the defence seems to be the defence seems to be no rules were broken. Well, I've got the rules that were in place at the time, Prime Minister of this party. They're very they're very clear, Mr. Speaker. You you must you must not have a work Christmas lunch or party. Does the Prime Minister really expect the country to believe that while people were banned from seeing their loved ones at Christmas last year, it was fine for him and his friends to throw a boozy party in Downing Street? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I've said, I've said what I've said about uh, number 10 and uh, uh, the events of, of 12 months ago, uh, but he, since he asked about what we're asking the, the country to do this year, Mr Speaker, which I think is uh, frankly a, a more relevant uh, consideration, uh, and, uh, the, the important thing to do, Mr Speaker, is not only to follow the guidance which we have, uh, which we have set out, 
but also when it comes to dealing with the Omicron uh, variant, to make sure that, as we've said, that you wear a mask in, uh, on public transport and in, uh, in, in shops, Mr. Speaker, and that you self-isolate if you come into contact uh, with, somebody, uh, with somebody who has uh, Omicron, Mr. Speaker. And above all, what we're doing is strengthening our measures at the borders, uh, but particularly, and I think this will be uh, very valuable for everybody here, uh, get your booster, Mr. Yeah. Speaker. I know, that, I know the right honourable gentleman uh, is eligible uh, for his booster. I'm not going to ask him, Mr Speaker, since I'm forbidden to ask him uh, questions, uh, but I hope very much uh, that he's had it. Well, I can tell the Prime Minister I'm up mine. Keir Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister says uh, we should concentrate on what he's asking the country to do. We're asking the country to follow the rules. Yep. Now, the Prime, Minister, the Prime Minister doesn't deny there was a Downing Street Christmas party last year. He's not denied it. He says... He says no rules were broken. Both of those things can't be true, Prime Minister. He's taking the British public for fools. And as for following the rules, Prime Minister, it might be good just to look behind you when it comes to the question of masks. As ever, one rule for them, another rule for everybody else. You saw there Boris Johnson in his classic, fairly obnoxious style, refusing to answer any questions put to him and instead changing the subject. First to the issue of whether Angela Rayner is invited to Keir Starmer's Christmas party. Um, I think she is, but she's not a co-host. This is a very Westminster bubble story. And then on to the current situation we face with COVID. That latter point is clearly significant. It is of more material consequence what we do this Christmas than what Boris Johnson's staffers did 12 months ago. But even if we do follow the Prime Minister's advice and, and focus on the present instead of the past, the government is less than impressive. Jenny Harris is famous for telling us masks don't work and that only poor countries need to bother with test and trace. She is now Chief Executive of the UK Health Security Agency, a very important job. On Tuesday, she suggested we should cancel our Christmas parties. If we all decrease our social contacts a little bit, um, actually that helps to keep uh, the the, uh, the variant at bay. So I think being careful, uh, not being not socialising when we don't particularly need to, um, and particularly going and getting those booster jabs. That advice to not socialise when we don't particularly need to was a break from what had been government messaging on Omicron. It was this, it was that contrast that dominated Boris Johnson's press conference later that day. Watch this exchange between the BBC's Vicky Young and the Prime Minister. Prime Minister, one of your top health advisers uh, suggested this morning that we should all uh, minimise our socialising over Christmas. Was she right to say that? Do you agree with her? Do you think that we should be cancelling Christmas parties right now? The answer is, is no. The guidance remains <laughs> the same and... Uh, we, uh, we're trying to take a, a balanced and proportionate approach. And as I explained on Saturday, when, uh, it, when talking for the first time to everybody about Omicron, we're really dealing with, uh, with two, uh, variants at, at the same time. We've got the, the measures in place to, uh, to, to fight, uh, Delta, uh, which we think are appropriate. And then we're bringing in some tougher measures to, uh, to stop the seeding, the, uh, the, the, the rapid seeding of, Omicron in this country to give us the time we need to get the boosters in and, of course, to find out more. So th those measures, as, as you know, are uh, the tough measures at the, at the borders, the PCR test uh, uh, when you arrive, uh, quarantine uh, until 
uh, you've got a, a negative result, uh, then uh, tougher measures on masks and then making sure that uh, contacts for uh, anybody, anybody who comes into contact with an Omicron uh, a case also has to, has to quarantine. We think that's the right balance. That was Boris Johnson rejecting the advice of Jenny Harrison, arguing that it's the current official guidance which is sufficient. That's all we should be following. The following morning, Health Secretary Sajid Javid was pushed on the same issue. I don't think people need to change those plans. They need to, as they have done you know, throughout this pandemic, the, the vast majority of British people have been responsible and cautious. Uh, they have followed guidance and that guidance hasn't changed. And But can I just say this, Dr. Jenny Harris, I work with her almost on a daily basis. Uh, she runs the UK Health Security Agency and she is uh, absolutely amazing in the work that she does. And we're very lucky to have someone like her advising her, but she will be the first person uh, to agree that you know, ministers get advice from, from different experts within government, and including outside government, and then we make a decision taking yes, account of Yes, but it leaves us in this position, because we've heard what she has said, and we've heard what you've said and the Prime Minister said, and people will, wonder, will be wondering, what is the right thing to do? Well, the, the right thing to do is to follow the existing guidance. Of course, that some of the Which changes... not listening to Jenny Harris, actually. Well, well, it means following the existing guidance, but taking into account the, the changes that have been announced in the last few days. Well, that was a bit of a word salad. I, I don't think what Sajid Javid there said was particularly useful. Following the guidance doesn't necessarily make you safe because the guidance has so much leeway in it. So what should we do? Who, who should we trust of those three? I've shown you Jenny Harris, Boris Johnson and Sajid Javid. Personally, I don't really like Harris's phrasing that we should only socialise if we particularly need to. Because you've got to ask, what does that mean? You know, in the strictest sense... You might not need to attend any social event. So if someone is is really taking that comment seriously, don't socialise if you don't need to. They might just never go out and have a really miserable Christmas. Now, you know, I could probably survive the winter by only going on walks with friends like I did last year. I don't need to go to Christmas parties. I don't need to even go to the pub. But it would be pretty shit, you know? We, we have vaccines now. I want to have at least a half-decent time. On the other hand... I don't think Boris Johnson or Sajid Javid's statements make much sense either. They're, they're basically saying, keep doing as you're doing because we've got this all under control. You can follow our basic advice, wear masks on the tube, wear masks in shops, but that's it. And this is obviously not true. They don't have this under control. We have around 50,000 daily cases of coronavirus and a very leaky border system, which means Omicron could quite easily get out of control. And at this point, we are quite confident it is more transmissible. We don't know if it's more severe. We are worried about whether or not it can evade vaccines and make them less effective. That's a bad thing. And their argument does not stack up. So for me, it's neither Harris, nor Johnson, nor Javid. I don't think really what any of them said was of much use whatsoever at all, which is kind of disappointing as these are the people who are communicating the public health advice at the moment. So what should they be saying? What should we be saying? What would I be saying if I was in their position? Well, I think it's, I don't think it's actually that complicated. I'd say if you want to socialize this winter, that's legit. That, that's, that's a reasonable desire to have. And also because of the vaccines, it is possible. But, and we have to be honest here, we need to recognize that it is going to be considerably more dangerous than usual. This Omicron variant, we still don't know that much about it. It's quite possible that if you go out over the next few weeks, you, you could catch it. We don't know. We don't know how widespread it is. And 
people should be free to make up their own minds about the risks they will take for themselves as a person. I think that's completely fine. Now that the vaccines have made this less of a, you know, there's an immediate threat that the NHS is going to collapse. I think people can leave it up to themselves what risk they, you know, they, they expose themselves to. What we do need to say, though, is that if you do go out to a party, test yourself before you go. Try and open the windows once you're there. And most importantly, if you are someone who is personally taking the risk of going to parties, make sure you don't then give that to someone who is making a different judgment, making a different judgment about risk. Because there are clearly many people who are very understandably, either because of you know just their own, uh, how much they value parties or, or how much they value their own health, or more importantly, more significantly, their own medical risk factors, how old are they, what underlying conditions do they have? Which means that, you know, if there are loads of people going to parties and then just, you know, walking around without a mask on, not taking any lateral flow tests, that puts lots of people in danger. This is the messaging we should be getting, which is that there are real risks. You've got to make your own mind up, but try not to make your actions impinge on, on other people as, uh, as much as possible. That's not what we hear. And I was thinking today, why is that not what we hear? Because that should be pretty simple. And instead we get these, these word salads. My conclusion after thinking about this is because that would require the government being honest, being honest about the situation we find ourselves in. And in a complex situation that we find ourselves in, like this one, it's not simple what we should be doing. What we need is a government that is honest with us about the risks that we are taking. We, we need to be fully informed when we make these decisions. But they are unwilling to do that because instead of working out how do we fully inform the public so that they can make you know, decisions according to their own priorities, they tell us whatever they think will keep us spending money. They're terrified of damaging consumer confidence. They're terrified that we will start complaining about unsafe workplaces, so they have to pretend that places are safe when they are not. And they want us to ignore that they're doing a pretty shitty job, right? You have to say, no, we've got this under control. No, it is kind of safe going to a Christmas party. It's clearly not, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to go, right? They won't be straight with us. And I am, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting frustrated about this, I have to say. I've got a couple more things to unload on you as well. About this government, about, about the failure of them to prepare us for this winter, because people are going to have to make tough decisions over the next two months, and they are going to be much more tough than they need to be. And first, I think this is because the government has completely failed to bother to invest in any ventilation anywhere. We, we are two years into this pandemic, this decision about whether or not I, I attend a, a, a Christmas party, it would be much easier if I was confident that pubs, bars, all of these hospitality venues had invested properly in ventilation over the past two years. But the government, as far as I understand, has done nothing to that effect. We could have been subsidizing these, these buildings to improve ventilation instead of subsidizing people to have a half-price meal, which didn't really make sense last summer. Anyway, just like with schools, they've done absolutely nothing on that front, which is why this winter is going to be harder than it needed to be. The second thing I'm annoyed about is masks. And I say this not as an anti-masker. I haven't become a Piers Corbyn, you can't keep a fart in your trousers kind of guy. The reason I say this is because I think it's right that we're being told that you should wear masks in, in shops and on trains. But again, like with ventilation, we're two years into this pandemic and it still hasn't been explained to us properly that not all masks are equal, right? If you wear a, a, a medical surgical mask or an N95 mask, then you are going to be keeping people around you, you know, very safe and, your, and yourself very safe. If you wear a cloth mask, 
you're keeping people around you a bit safer than they otherwise would be, but not nearly as safe as if you wore a surgical mask. There's science backing this up. I'm not making this up. It was reported um, on CNBC very recently, a study by a group of researchers um, from Yale and Stanford. And they found that surgical masks are 95% effective at filtering out virus particles compared to just 37% for cloth masks. And we still, we still got the government to say, oh, just wear any old mask. Now, and, and you see that, you go on the tube, most people are just wearing a bit of cloth in front of their, their mouth instead of a surgical mask. And I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not, I'm not blaming anyone because they're doing what they were told to do. And at the start of the pandemic, actually that made sense because the reason we were told, make your own mask, don't use the surgical mask, is because we needed to prioritize those for people who worked in, in, in healthcare, healthcare workers, because they were most at risk. But there isn't a shortage of masks anymore. So why aren't they telling us that? And if there is a shortage of masks, why aren't we investing enough money that we can just you know, make enough surgical masks for everyone? What, there should at this point be a pack of masks, high quality masks sent to every citizen in Britain. And then maybe when we go through this whole rigmarole, this sort of COVID theater of putting that mask on before we go to the tube. Now, do that. I do that. But it's way less effective than it could be because I think the government, their priority here is we have to be seen to be doing something. We're going to do the bare minimum. And the moment it's remotely difficult, you know, subsidizing pubs to install ventilation or or boosting the production of, of actually effective masks and then sending them out, the government like, oh, that's beyond us, actually. That's beyond us. What we're going to do is the bare minimum that makes people feel like something is happening. And that has been their, their strategy throughout this whole pandemic. And that's why we're having this conversation of, are you going to avoid all Christmas parties and you know, have another fairly miserable year? Or are you going to subject yourself to the, to the risk of catching COVID? I find it very frustrating we're still having this conversation after two years. Finally, I do want to say, because we're not going to change our government for a while. If you want to spark revolution, go for it. But we're probably going to have to wait till at least the next election, probably longer, with Keir Starmer being the dud he is. You can buy a better mask. I bought a, a 50p N95 mask, supposed to be reusable. I wear it all the time. Doesn't matter. I've read this up. It doesn't matter. You can wear them loads of times. Not bad for your health. Much safer. So a little tisky tip for you. Go to a chemist, spend 50p on an N95 surgical mask. Um, but most importantly, I don't want to end this, this section with uh, you know, personal advice because we need this winter to focus on what the government are not doing, not judging people on the decisions they make, on, on whether they go out or whether they don't go out because people are making difficult decisions. If people don't want to have a miserable winter, if people can't handle another winter where they don't go out to parties, I think that's completely fair enough. But let's just make this as, you know, as, as safe as it, it can be and get your booster. I booked mine today. I was very excited. Let's go to our final story. As Boris Johnson's government reintroduces some modest restrictions, Tory MPs have once again found themselves being challenged on their refusal to follow their own rules. On the BBC's Politics Live this week, Tory MP Jake Berry was asked why he refused to wear masks in the House of Commons by the SNP's John Nicholson. His comeback didn't go how he planned. It's a great clip. Let's take a look. I think it's very important uh, to answer Jake's point that politicians lead by example. Well, what All right, are you doing here then? Why aren't you working from home? What are you doing in London? If you're leading by example and in because, Scotland, because you, where possible you work from home, because, why aren't we talking to you down a Zoom link? Well, let me tell you, because the leader of the House has refused to allow us to vote electronically. That's why the Tory leader of the House refuses to allow us to use the technology in place at the moment. What an idiot. 
Why should I wear a mask if you're not working from home? You know, put your money where your mouth is. Perfect answer because you're party bandit. I would be working from home if you hadn't needlessly banned voting from home, right? Now, to jolt your memory, we'll, we'll, we'll go through this, um, the, the timeline of events when it came to remote voting. So during the first lockdown, remote voting was allowed for the first time in Parliament's history. That was a good call. However, less than three months later, remember how long this pandemic has been going on? After three months, they thought it was over. After three months, on June the 2nd, 2020, remote voting was abandoned. That was at the behest of Jacob Rees-Mogg, and it prompted protest from the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. They said that this was discriminatory because there are people who are, who are vulnerable who wouldn't be able to go into it to work and, and vote. Their advice was, was ignored by Rees-Mogg, but ultimately, even he couldn't fight against the push to close Parliament this January, so remote voting came back against his wishes, but once again, that didn't last too long. Remote voting was again abolished on June the 21st this year. So to justify that, at the time, Jacob Rees-Mogg said, the Commons Chamber has become an echoing empty barn, so when restrictions allow it to return, it must return to normal. Um, he also said that debates conducted via Zoom had become akin to watching paint dry. I have one more clip for you because, remarkably, that intervention by Jake Berry wasn't the most ridiculous defence of government policy on the BBC's Politics Live this week. Ben Bradley appeared on the show the following day and said this. I'm never going to criticise the government for not wanting to rush in uh, to overburdensome restrictions when, mm. when if they are not necessary. Science is not an exact science at the end of the day. <laughs> at the end of the day, science is not an exact science. May I feel for you. Like going, going on TV is stressful. Young guys gone on TV, said something really dumb. I suppose the reason I don't feel any sympathy for him is because the point he was trying to make is also dumb. Like the debate was about working from home. The government is still refusing to to let people work from home because they want their landlord mates to 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 keep getting rent for their inner city office buildings. There are no scientists that say working from home would be a bad idea. Everyone on Sage is very clear. If you want to reduce transmission, get people to work from home. I don't think. There are many sort of social psychologists that say giving people the option to work from home, which is what we're talking about here, giving people the option to work from home would cause you know, loads of depression, would cause loads of other health issues to, to emerge. No, this is just giving people choice. The Tories don't want to do it because they want to support their landlord mates. He's saying, oh, this is actually an open scientific question. It's not. Let's wrap up there. It's been a pleasure being joined by you all this evening. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm, so make sure to hit subscribe. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.